This is The Culture Code with Kevin Cruz, founder and CEO of LeadX, the platform that helps you scale and sustain a high-performance culture. Well, first, let me introduce myself. I'm Kevin Cruz. I'm the founder of LeadX. We're on a crazy mission to spark the next 100 million leaders around the world. We don't have all the answers and we can't do it alone. You are part of the solution. We believe and love leadership development experiences that have sky-high participation rates that move the needle on behaviors that show measurable business outcomes. And we, of course, try to help our friends do it with live workshops, traditional coaching, but also the LeadX Cloud platform with nudges, micro-coaching, and micro-learning. But that's the only advertisement you're going to get today. This isn't a user group meeting. Uh, Very few of you are clients. Most of you are not or not yet. And we stay out of the breakout rooms. We want you to meet with your peers and be able to ask any question and give honest advice without vendors or full-time coaches or consultants in there that can kind of spin the conversation a certain way. Our audacious goal is to make this your favorite meeting of the month. We want you to come in and have fun, make friends, learn, and to share. And so please always give us feedback on what we could be doing better to make this your favorite meeting. And uh, today, we don't have Dwayne Best co-hosting because he's off getting married today. Those of you who are with us. I can't believe you missed that for this. <laughs> I know. I, I told him, I said, hey, you couldn't have rescheduled your wedding around a COP. Right. I mean, we, it's the second Friday of every month. He had to have known Todd. <laughs> but That's Todd, crazy. although we're missing uh, Dwayne, I am delighted to say that you have volunteered to co-host with me today. So big thanks, Todd. Yeah. I uh, appreciate many of you. You've met many people in the community, of course. But for those who are new, tell them a little bit about your background. Yeah, well, thanks for having me here. It's it's great to be here with these learning professionals. It's great to have Brandon on here. I think Susan's on here as well. So it's a great group that will be leading this conversation today. Yeah, so I've been in L&D for probably 10 years. I've been a leader for 25 plus years. You know, I've been a student of leadership and coaching for 25 years. And, uh, you know, I love it. It's it's my passion around developing the best leaders, you know, at all levels of an organization. So uh, happy to to learn from everybody. And Really happy to be here in in this program, Kevin. It's a great one. Yeah, thanks, Todd. And uh, for those who haven't met Todd yet, I mean, he's a great uh, co-host as well because, well, actually similar to our guest author. I mean, um, Todd, I think you're just one of the deepest thinkers I know in the space from the research side to innovation. You know, you're always talking about AR, VR, believer in the coach approach, and yet it's coming not, (laughs) no offense to my professor friends, but it's coming from a real world practitioner angle. So, that's what I've always appreciated. And we always have fun when we chop it up. So thanks, man. Uh, I appreciate it. And we talk a little sports every now and then. Okay. So I won't go down the rabbit hole because not everyone's a golfer <laughs> here, but Todd, big news in golfing this week, right? Oh my goodness. That was a shocker. So tell that the audience in simple terms, what just happened? People chat it up. If you know what we're re- referring to. You know, the feud between the PGA tour, the DP world tour and the startup live tour. Yeah, see, my science came up. Yeah, basically agreed to merge together to form one united professional golf league. It was shocking. I mean, just, you know, the, the banter from the PGA Tour around the Live and the PIF fund and where that came from. And then from the Live side, it was really unbelievable. I think it's, I think golf's going to be better overall for it. Just because it unites, I think it's going to be really beneficial for the DP World Tour because they were the ones who were getting crushed by Live. I think in most cases, but nobody was really getting hurt by Live if you really yeah. look at the TV ratings. But just player-wise, I think it's going to be helpful. But what you heard a year ago is totally different than what you're hearing now. So it was it was a shocking merger. I thought I don't yeah, know about I, you. I'm not a golfer, but I I certainly watch sports and think there's a lot of lessons from sports. And so for all the non-golfers, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but. PGA had a split and the new league um, is funded by the Saudi Arabian government, one of their funds. And so there was a very emotional debate as many stars went to the new group and were accused of anything from being anti-American to supporting terrorism or something. It got really emotional. And people like Tiger Woods turned down billion dollar offers to protect the PGA. 
And now the PGA has decided to merge with the yeah. other group and all of that is in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Hideki Matsya, yeah, he turned down a hundred million dollars. Supposedly Roy turned down over a hundred million dollars and just stay with the PGA tour. And then now they're merging. And those guys who like DJ and, and Brooks yeah. Kepka, who took a hundred million plus in some areas are coming back and can keep that money. Now, who knows yeah. what that looks like in the long-term cabin. Cause you know, there's some, stipulations around that but if somebody tells dj that he's giving back part of his hundred million i think dj would just quit yeah moving away from golf the other big news this week and please answer this question did you see a video of the new vision pro goggles announced by apple these new goggles if you saw the video what do you think what's your reaction to the vision pro todd you were you've been into ar vr for a while actually earlier than most what do you think of their announcement and getting into the game? I think it's fast. I mean, it's been coming for a while. I mean, I'm used to Pico, Wright, and Quest. They've been the two biggest players. HTC, I think, has been a decent-sized player as well. So Apple joining it is just going to raise the bar, going to really help. And, and Quest, from my standpoint, I don't know what, what uh, Brandon thinks, but I don't know if Quest had the, you know, their customer service wasn't great, in my point. They kind of felt like they were the biggest player in the in the game. So they didn't really have to provide great customer service. I think this new competition will lower prices, improve technology and offerings at the same time, hopefully improving customer service and, and really Meta's approach to customer service from a VR standpoint, because I used them for at least five years, building out coaching and leadership and emotional intelligence scenarios to assess our leaders at, at BI and always use Quest. In fact, purchased probably a hundred VR wow. headsets at that time. People thought I was nuts, but it really worked out at the end to be a really great venture but yeah i think this apple news is fascinating yeah in the comments uh people are commenting rightly so it, like the launch price is 3500 right. per set which is pretty shocking but i it think I, yeah look the, i went back and looked the macintosh the original little macintosh when it launched it was two thousand dollars in 1984 so that's like six thousand dollars today yeah. And the, the breakthrough wasn't about the macintosh it introduced a new interface the mouse right. the gui etc I think the news isn't really the goggle, it's the spatial no. interface. Yeah. And as you know, it's going to take years, but as the goggles shrink, as there's new ways to do it, to be able to look at something and tap your fingers, it's just a whole new interface design. And uh, so sure, it's a developer toy and a rich yeah. person's toy for a year or two, but I think we're going to look back at this moment as like the same way we look back at the launch of the yeah. Macintosh. Yeah. But, it ups the any to your standpoint on a platform design that others are going to have to look at it and try to mimic if they can. Yeah. Hey, let's dive into the official program. Um, we are going to be talking to the author of LD's playbook for the digital age in just two more minutes. Then we go into our first breakout. So you get to increase your social capital, which is a fancy way of saying make new friends and share and learn. We're going to come out of that. We're going to hear from Susan Page talking about like really cool project for building a sustaining enviable culture, time permitting another quick breakout session. And then what we call, we officially end at uh, 3.30 Eastern, but then we hang out for a while. It's Friday. We hang out for a while. We call it the after party. We just keep talking about golf or AI goggles or whatever we want. Next week, we will send out notes and links to all the good stuff that's here. And let me start with the announcement. So hopefully everyone got a copy of Leadership Development Magazine. Tell us what you think. So if you had given us your mailing address when you signed up for the COP, hopefully you got a paper copy in the mail. If you didn't, you should have gotten a digital copy. Hey, Evan, can you come on the mic, turn on your mic for a second? Yeah. Yeah. So Evan, as you know, really runs our community and our content. And first of all, Evan, thanks, because you were the one that edits and produces this new, brand new magazine. So thanks for that. Tell us about the vision for it in the future. Sure. Yeah, so I think most of you know that at LeadX and through Kevin's account, we're constantly releasing new articles, um, thought pieces, and in-depth case studies. And so the physical, digital magazine is essentially like a repackaging of the very best of those articles. And we like repackage, refine and design them and then deliver them to all of you. And I think like looking into the future, the big thing is that we're going to keep consistently releasing this magazine, uh, most likely twice a year, 
And if it's going well, maybe quarterly as well. And also I would add that this issue will be our thinnest one. So our next one should be at least double the length. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of my influence. You know, I did the weight test. I'm like, whoa, this is so cool. It's full color. It's glossy, but let's do double the pages next time. That's my strategic (laughs) thinking. I just want to be heavier, want to be thicker. (laughs) <laughs> what a tease, Angel says. Yeah, and um, I think it might have been Matthew who uh, sent us a really nice email when this came out talking about how like it was sitting on his desk. And it, it readily resonated with me because this content, much of it appears in Forbes. Much of it then gets republished on our website. Much of it we talk about here or on LinkedIn. But not all of us are in all of those spaces. And life's moving so fast to like have something physical that we can stick in our book bag, you know, when we get on an airplane or to leave on our desk to, you know, enjoy a cup of coffee. I think it's going to just help us to send out all these positive cases. Evan, thanks again for that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then last item, the freebie of the month. So this is a new thing going into our vault. It's a 12-week self-paced program to improve communication. Now, again, if you're new here, we give away free things to all the members that you have open rights to. You can send it to all your employees, send it to all your managers. You can upload it to your LMS. Even if you don't want to distribute it, you can use it for inspiration for creating some of your own books. So for example, this one, this is the PDF. And so this 12-week program, like week one, it's a behavioral contract to like commit to this 12-week self-coaching guide. Then there's a micro learning video. Click it and watch you communicating for employee engagement. Conversation starters with your team. That's always my favorite activity. Personality and your mindset, how your personality influences coaching. So if you want a copy of this with full rights to use in your organization, just say, give it to me. I want it. Communication plan, something in the chat. And then our team will send it to you next week as a PDF. And we'll keep it coming. And let us know. If there's other topics that you're super interested in for your managers, for your leaders, and we'll try to prioritize that. All right. Boy, we had so much fun. Uh, We're clicking along. It is my pleasure now to introduce our next guest. He has decades of experience as an L&D professional. Like, my gosh, the names, Sun, Yahoo, Home Depot, Delta Airlines. He was the VP of the Global Leadership Academy at a tiny little company called Walmart. (laughs) And... Just last month, he assumed the new role as VP of Learning and Development. Coming to us from Seattle, he is the VP of Learning Development at Starbucks. Brandon, welcome. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you having me here, Kevin. Really, what a lively uh, community we've got going here. Love it. Yeah, it's been great. And we're just honored to have you. Your new book is L&D's Playbook for the Digital Age. I should say your most recent one. You also are the author of Learning in the Age of Immediacy. And um, I want to remind everyone on the call you will get a free copy of L&D's playbook, assuming we have your mailing address. If you're not sure if you gave it to us, send an email to debbie at leadx.org. She'll double check that we have your current mailing address and we'll get that book out to you. And Brandon, I just want to start. So because everyone's going to get the book, I don't want to necessarily summarize it. I want to celebrate it. And I want to selfishly ask you some questions that came into my mind, you know, from reading it. And the book came out in 2021, means you probably wrote it in 2020. You get a little mention of the pandemic, you know, it was right around that time. And you ha- talk about the major global trends that are going on. And mm-hmm. to your credit, you even talk about general AI long before those terms were in the headlines. But is your head spinning? Like, what have you thought just from this year, what's going on? Well, it, it, well thank you, first of all. And, and yes, I was at Delta when... Um, the pandemic hit. And, um, you know, I would highly recommend not working at an airline during a global pandemic. It's a bit, bit of a challenge. People don't want to get in this little metal tube together and travel <laughs> when, when they might breathe on each other, right? But no, to be more serious about it, it was unfolding as I was writing this. And this was really sort of a follow-up to my first book. And the idea was, the first book was really about the five broader forces that are driving and underpinning the digital age, right? And it was sort of this like sort of broad treatise on all these things happening. And this one was more like, well, how do we in L&D take all of what's going on in this this really interesting time and hone that into a playbook? And it was kind of weird because as the pandemic happened, well, we at the airline didn't have a playbook for a pandemic. We hadn't thought of that. And 
So part of what happened was this sort of real-time writing. It was ATD that was publishing it. And they were like, okay, you've got to start getting sort of the impact of the pandemic in there. And I'm like, but it's happening in real time all around us, you know, and this is like a book that you want to publish and you, you're going to take three months to print it and all that. So it was a little bit real time, but we're just in, I mean, we could already tell the exponential sort of impact of the digital age. And then the narrative that was coming out of the pandemic, which really just shook the world, right, was what does this mean for how we define work and what do we want from work? And so part of the book just became that because we we in our practice, the people practice, were elevated quite a bit during the pandemic and especially the kind of crux of it. And we were put on center stage, if you will, we became more elevated and visible and helped drive business continuity across. We're all exhausted because of that. But the good thing that came out of that was this more heightened responsibility that your people practice has on impact to the business and to the workforce itself. And so some of that I got into the book, but it was almost one of these things where these playbooks are really important. And what tells us because of everything that was going on is strategies are hard because it's hard to have static strategies. It's hard to have a five-year strategy now. So by sort of transitioning and creating more of a flexible and pliable playbook, we'll definitely be able to respond more proactively to changes going on in the business. I mean, look at Look at generative AI in January, right? It's become one of the biggest, you know, software utilizations ever, you know, with over 100 million users in just a few weeks. So we definitely need to be much more pliable in the practice that we're in. And so some of this was to sort of have a conversation about the foundation of that and how we move forward. We didn't prep the conversation. I never prep conversations ahead of time, but you said impact. And that was one of the things that I really lit up of on in reading your book, because People are talking about in this group, like analytics, getting better with analytics, showing value, showing impact. It's a hot topic here. And we're going to be leaning more into that in the months ahead. You've got a chapter on that. And you talk about, you know, having sort of a balanced scorecard, measuring consumption, diversity, efficiency, impact. And you give an example. Can you speak a little bit about your thoughts on the right way, what should be measured, challenges with measurement, et cetera? Yeah, we've been challenged with that quite a bit over. Gosh, I've been in the business 25 years now. And not all of this is our our sort of fault, if you will. Even in today's world, a lot of organizations are what I would call data immature. And people practices, candidly, over the years have been sort of starved for resources when it comes to the acumen that's required to really derive insight from what we do. A lot of us are still in that transition away from this sort of transactional approach to what we do versus this sort of moving along the continuum to trying to determine how we can measure true impact of what we do, right? And beyond just sort of the budget, if you will, and the headcount and resources and all that to do what we do. So I do sort of feel like we've lost a lot of time over the last couple of decades trying to figure out how we really measure the impact of what we do. And one of the reasons that that's been challenging is because of, uh, and I talk a lot about this at length in the book, is somehow how our orgs are, in some ways, how our orgs are structured, where we sit in the organization, in our operating model, if you will. So a lot of times we're cost centers, you know, and we're sort of looked at as a labor burden, if you will. So when you look at the workforce, the workforce in a lot of companies is looked at as labor burden or wage burden, right? And I think part of the challenge that we've had in the people practice is responding to that sort of look at how we view the workforce when it comes to the cost, if you will. And so I think there's all these dynamics that have conflated together to sort of drive this operating model that we've been under for quite some time. And what I'm saying in the book is we need to pull ourselves out of that operating model and really become much more attuned and connected and really in some ways helping to drive the overall strategy of the business. If you ask any CEO right now what their top concern is, in that top two to three are going to be their people and their people's capabilities. But however, investment in those areas have been not quite near the level of investment in technology. 
just to take an example, right? So it's so one of the due diligences that we should have, or one of the responsibilities that we should have in the people practice is to really try to derive deeper insight into how we have impact. And I mean, in retail, it's a little bit of a challenge in a way to drive that from a training perspective, but there's all sorts of measures you can apply. We were just going over this earlier, looking at the workforce's sentiment as it applies to their readiness, you know, the readiness to do the work, their readiness to engage with customers. How do you do that? And one of the key drivers there is training. And so how do you build measures around some of those really critical KPIs to your business? If it's a uh, customer engagement, customer satisfaction, how do you really get into the business to drive? Well, what do I do from a training perspective or a people development perspective that impacts that KPI? And so I think that's what we really need to do is drive to where those KPIs are. Now, for the business, and speak more of the language of the business. Now, what you see here on some of these scorecards would be really more for L&D's efficiency and effectiveness. And I think that's important. We need to have measures for how we're doing as a function within the enterprise, but we really need to focus more on how do we impact the actual bottom line to the business? How do we impact those KPIs that are important levers that the business needs to understand so that if you didn't have, quote, training, you didn't bring that measure in, then there would be a recognizable impact to the bottom line when it comes to customer satisfaction, engagement, revenue, those types of things. So like in retail, for example, even that customer NPS is important. Even when I was at the airline, we led safety training, for example, and safety safety measures are KPI. It's a little bit easier to draw a correlation to the impact we have when it applies to those uh, safety measures, right, that go to the no error record, the no damage record, you know, those kinds of things. That makes sense. Well, and Brand, just to build that more, so this, I only have one more slide of stuff. So this, I took it out of my Kindle. Normally I wave your book out, but I read it on the Kindle. <laughs> it, the next chapter is talking about expanding your role and especially not just for L&D, but for leadership development folks. I love this. L&D can serve as performance consultants and modernizing the employee experience in three areas, workplace adaptability, employee well-being, and employee engagement. I jumped out of my chair and I gave you a high five, Brandon, even though you didn't know I was doing it. Because if we know from Gallup Research and others, 70% of the variance in employee engagement comes from who your manager is, what the manager does. And so why is experience and learning and development siloed apart? And so back to that like key measures, this is a big step in the right direction, right? This is gets C-level yeah. attention if you're actually moving the needle on engagement. Yeah, and I think the narrative, you know, we can see it now probably a little bit more in focus in 2020 than before, you know, me meaning in, in eyesight 2020, because the, the pandemic sort of rewrote the narrative, you know, and we moved into this. I don't know if any of you have heard of the, the newest acronym going around called BANI, you know, we were in this VUCA world, right? I, I love acronyms, but now we've moved into this BANI world. And what that stands for is brittle. So B is for brittle, A is for anxious, N is for nonlinear, and I, the I is for incomprehensible. And so we are in times that are like, take brittle, for example, right? We rely so assertively on systems now to do a lot of what we do. I mean, every worker at every level now interacts with technology in some form to get their job done. And so, and candidly, a lot of that is brittle. And then you look at the sort of anxiety coming out of a global pandemic and you know all of the baggage, if you will, that comes with that, right? And so a lot more anxiety and anxiousness, but even when it whittles down to me doing my job, and what is my job and how is that changing? How is automation and artificial intelligence and all this technology going to change what I do? And am I prepared for that, right? And is my company preparing me for that? And then this sort of nonlinear where things, you know, you smaller actions have pretty broad reactions in some ways. And then this incomprehensible, like fire hose of information coming our way. Mm -hmm. Work is never going to be less complex, right? And technology is not necessarily going to make work easier, right? So when you think about everything coming out of the last few years, employees really need to, you know, focus a lot on uh, well-being and adaptability, and we need to drive engagement 
much more deeply. And those in the past weren't necessarily core skills of the L&D practice. You know, we're training on job function or like you said, we're doing basic leadership development. Well, leading and managing has shifted tremendously. And so we really need to focus on how uh, the script has changed. And that puts all of us in the people practice in a unique position to where we now need to take a more systems view, like the systems thinking view of the ecosystem in which the work actually occurs and start thinking about how do we build in more motivation to learn in the actual construction of both the physical and digital work systems, right? And how do we, you know, lots of companies are having this conversation about return to office or hybrid versus remote, all of this conversation about just how to work and L&D, I believe HR and L&D is now in a really good position to be that COE, if you will, to think about, well, what does and what should the physical and digital systems in which we do our work, what should they be made of and constructed of to really help drive and motivate more engagement and learning and well-being throughout? So I think we have that as a new, newfound responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. Todd, anything to add or questions for Brandon? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I look at, yeah, I definitely have some questions for him. When you think about the measuring, right, our ability to measure impact, our ability to measure performance as we we think about it from a leadership standpoint or from, as you were talking about, from a safety standpoint that you did with a, with a VR at Delta. I don't know if you're as giddy about this as me, but I really think this AI VR AR, these simulations can really help us measure people's ability to learn and then perform those tasks from an emotional intelligence standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, or from a safety standpoint. And that's where I'm fascinated about, about VR, AR, and this AI technology is that it can help us measure and show progress and give those learners progress reports. And then AI can provide a much more agile approach based on how well you do in that simulation or scenario it can add to it or take it away. So I, I'm fascinated about your thoughts around how you view AR, VR, and AI as it, it continues to more from a learning technology standpoint. Yeah, you know, it's it's really a great topic, good question. We literally were moving right before the pandemic, we were moving in the direction of much more immersive learning uh, using VR, candidly, in safety training at Delta. And, and we ran some pilots and we derived some data. So we did some AB pilots where we brought in uh, for a couple of different functions around safety, around the airplane, those kinds of things. We did some testing with VR and then some testing just with, you know, comparison testing with the regular type of training modality that we did for the same thing. And, you know, the the interesting thing is the data was pretty stark in that we saw uh, significant improvement in um competence and capability building around the what we were training uh, on from a safety perspective with the VR training. It's like a much more rapid acquisition yeah. of what was important. And then from the regular training, it was a little bit of a no-brainer. It was a little bit of a surprise, candidly, yeah. that the data was so stark in improving safety standards in these different types of uh, environments that we were doing. The ROI on that would show us that moving in that direction would, one, significantly improve retention of important safety um, knowledge, yep. and two, really accelerate it across. So it's, it wasn't that difficult to scale from the standpoint of the impact of the actual experience. Yep. The bigger challenge is just in the hardware, software component, right. how yeah. you scale that across, right? But that's an implementation challenge, if you will. We were really surprised by that. And we were moving pretty assertively in that direction. And I would say very similar data was coming forward in our leadership development as well, especially as it applies to just sort of those, some of the basic manager enablement components yeah. around the conversations to have, you know, crucial conversations and those types of things. So yeah. I definitely, I watched the Apple stuff too. There's just different ways of thinking about how you implement this at scale. And that's the bigger challenge. And one of the reasons in my prior role that we didn't go with the Quest headset was just because of some of the dynamics of working with Facebook and their yeah. 
data privacy and stuff like that. So I think as an organization, you just have to figure that out, right? But the data is there that says this is a modality that's definitely for scalability worth looking at and potentially investing in. Yeah, I saw the same experience at BI. It was very immersive. People, especially from a leadership standpoint, they're so immersive that what we heard was people get so immersed in the scenario and simulation, you can really test emotional intelligence, right? Their ability to recognize coaching scenarios and how they act in a different coaching scenario based on how you build out that simulation. So yeah, I love that, Brandon. I think it's interesting technology as we move forward and and one that will help us measure progress and impact of our training methodologies. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Hey, Brandon, I know you've been uh, generous. We've kept you over your uh, your allotted time. Last question, I'm curious, you just landed at Starbucks. Is it too early to know what some of your big challenges are going to be in your role? A little early. I've been here uh, three weeks. It's a very human-centered organization and uh, love that. One of the biggest challenges across, not even just here, but as we look at leadership development going forward, it's like, how do we do a couple of things, I think are the big questions, right? It's not just for here, it's really for all of us, I would think. How do you build in sort of that or develop that systems thinking in your leaders, that more general manager perspective, right? And we candidly need that at multiple levels. In a lot of ways, we've thought about that primarily for senior leaders, but how do you build that bench of systems thinkers and general managers probably relying less on specialists in certain areas and certain domains and sort of foster that that type of capability building across your leaders. And then how do you integrate that talent development role into leaders? Are leaders talent developers? Are they constantly developing talent? So I think we, you know, when it comes to leadership development, so many companies are challenged and struggling with moving away from sort of that traditional model of development for leaders over the years that really hasn't changed much. How do you get to that more leader readiness capability and expand that capacity for navigating the ambiguity? Work is going to be more complex and more complicated. And so how do we build sort of that bench strength of capacity for leaders? That's the big question that I have even as I go forward here, but we'll see. Sounds good. Hey, thank you again for joining us today. Congratulations on the book and congratulations on the new role. Hope to see you back. Kevin, appreciate you having me here. And thank you, everyone. Good to see you. Happy Friday. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. I think people are still coming out of their rooms. Let me pause my DJ music and we just uh, will give everyone another uh, few uh, seconds here. Evan, can we spotlight Todd again? Is he? I'm trying to. There he is. I see him in my screen of lots of windows. Todd, what did your breakout uh, have a chance to talk about? You know what? It was a great group. I mean, a lot of people who are kind of the one-man show, so they're Dylan, right? They got the harmonica guitar going, right? They're trying to do it all at one time. Like the reference. (laughs) Exactly. So we were just talking about, you know, how can technology help them out? You know, it's cost prohibitive in some situations, especially VR, AR, when, you know, you think about that cost. You know, I did it at a, a large company at BI, uh, Baron Gringelheim at the time. And, uh, you know, when we looked at the savings we got from travel and expenses and bringing in assessors, we saved the company in, in a short, in a two year period of time, about $500,000 from travel and expenses and hiring or bringing in assessors or taking people out of the territory. So the cost was greatly offset the cost of initially using VR, AR, or building those simulations. And then we just talked about simple things that we can do to use technology. Like there's a lot of really inexpensive. AI technology that you can be build micro content from. Like I was talking about a, a little company called InVideo that I used and I shared a little link to one of the, the videos. I made a VR AR thing I put on the LeadX site that I yep. built off that. So I think there's ways you can do it that are very inexpensive where it can help drive the capacity. But yeah, it was a great discussion with the group. Yeah, Todd, and you know, you point like some of the technology solutions can be cost prohibitive or difficult to justify, yeah. not impossible for smaller organizations, but you know, one of the things that stood out to me from Brandon's book, and Brandon, thanks for sticking around, by the way, I see you here, was like, I think most of his book was about how to adapt in this new age just by doing non-technology things like right. yeah. buying closer to impact, you know, shifting models and frameworks. As Brandon said, you know, we've been training people the same way with these programs yeah. forever and forever. What's the new way look like, whether you've got goggles or not? So I, th- I think there's right. a lot of potential there. Exactly. Yeah, good, good. 
Well, welcome back, everyone. Hope you had a good discussion. And um, we're going to now go into our mini case. Every month, we invite one of you to come and share something that uh, you've been working on or something cool you've done. Our case comes from an awesome interview uh, that I did, and it became a Forbes article, How to Scale and Maintain an Enviable Culture, in quotes, as your employee count doubles. Our guest has been a workforce strategist, culture amplifier at Novartis, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, most recently head of OD and talent effectiveness and employee experience at Global Blood Therapeutics, GBT, which was acquired by Pfizer earlier this year. Please wave your welcome to Susan Page. Susan, thanks. Hi, everyone. Well, two things. Thank you for the intro. And also, I was really fascinated um, by the first author. It was really great. Secondly, I thought you were playing Bob Dylan because the Minnesota roots and then come to find out it works. You could just peanut butter spread it for the whole show. The last thing is I saw The Cure last night and they mm -hmm. played for three or two hours and 45 minutes. And it was amazing. And there were a lot of people sitting down, including myself, and I didn't care. But I, you know, these bands are coming back. They're making a comeback. So. You're lucky to uh, have, have gotten out and listened. It sounds like a great event. Well, let's start with this. So GBT, just so people have a context, what did the company do the size before being acquired by Pfizer? Yeah, so Global Blood Therapeutics, when I joined, was around 200 employees, and we had a single asset, a single medication for patients with sickle cell disease. And we had different formulations of it, but then also different products that were for rare blood disorders in the pipeline. And we had one that came to market, a second one. So we grew, we doubled in size to over 400 employees in about two years. And we did global blood therapeutics was the only medication at that time that was doing innovative things for sickle cell disease. And we also had a huge, huge partnership with the sickle cell community just because of the board and the leadership that ran the organization. So we used to say that it was a um, social justice movement disguised as a biotech company. I love that. I love that. And Susan, one of the things I liked about your story, and actually Todd and I were just, just referencing this, is it's a smaller organization that was growing fast. And so often we've had guests mm -hmm. come on and present cases and they'll talk about their 100-person L&D department or, you know, $100 oh, million yeah. dollar budget and all these things. And we want to make sure we're inclusive of all sizes of teams and organizations. And not everything is yeah. a big budget solution. So this, you know, right. is going to be really opening people's eyes. But let me also start in the Forbes article, we ended up putting in quotes, the enviable culture. So why is that in quotes? What does that term mean? I think we could have gone with differentiated culture, but what we really were getting at was that feeling of when, and I think we all know it, and I actually know it too, because I'm currently in between roles, is you kind of have envy for people that, you know, they're not searching for jobs. They're really satisfied at their current position. They're telling people, this is the place, this is the real deal. And that was the vibe that we got. So differentiated just seemed slightly generic. Enviable, we could feel that. Like that made a difference. You know, as a writer, you know, and a reader, I think I have an ear for language that stood out because like everyone talks about, oh, we want to have a great culture. You know, it says we want to we want to have yeah. a unique culture. Our culture is unique. But enviable, there's like it packs some punch and it's so aspirational yeah. and a little edgy. I, I really like that a lot. And you told me that, you decided that the right way to go about this was actually from a grassroots approach. So tell me how you decided to take a grassroots approach to maintaining and scaling the enviable culture. Yeah. I mean, if you really wanted to be, I always tell people I'm a nerd. So I'm like, oh, I nerd out at learning and development. You could probably say that it was a curricula that was led and co-created with the employees. So that's kind of the grassroots piece is that it was all about culture. And we wanted the curricula, which was pretty loose. It was really a series of discussions to be led by the employees. 
And so that's what we did. We created a culture council or culture champions, and they were the individuals that really led the iteration on design, the delivery, and then the really morphing once we were acquired into these real talk sessions. So that was the grassroots pieces. This isn't going to come from HR. Yeah, so this is interesting. You're saying, hey, it's not that the HR team is going to go and do a bunch of meetings with everybody to talk about. Yeah. You recruited employees to be culture champions. Now, how many yeah. of them were there and how did you pick them? Did, could I just raise my hand and say, hey, I want to be a culture champion? Well, I always want to make things super simple. So we said you can write 300 words or less of why you'd want to be a culture champion, or you can submit a three-minute video. Now, we also said we want you to be in good standing from a performance standpoint, and we also would like you to have been at the organization for at least six months so that you have an idea of what's the value proposition here. And that's what we did. And we had, it was hard. It was super hard to say no. And we had double of what we could choose from, which ended up being about 12 culture champions. But it just made it sweeter because then we had an idea of who those 15 extra people are that would be advocates and ambassadors of the culture beyond being a culture champion. And Susan, I think we might not have talked about this. So it kind of goes to my hot button issue of like emerging leader programs where it's like, oh, we know we're going to need 100 managers over the next year. Let's launch an emerging leader program and only let 10 people into the program and tell 90 other people, no, like you're not good enough, right? right? Like not a great move. So I'm of two minds. Like part of it is, hey, not everybody can be a culture champ. We don't need that many. And it is like a badge of honor, right? Hey, I'm a culture champion Mm -hmm. here at GBT. But looking back, was that the right decision? Or do you think you might've disengaged those who said, I love it here. I'm it. I'm all in. I'm going to do this. In addition to my main job, you're like, nah, we're not really interested. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, if we had to do it over again, I would probably iterate on some things, but I do think that it should be an open application and that there are going to be people that, you know, we just had so many, I'm okay with people saying they are with me saying everybody was great. These were like top notch great. And guess what? You have to lead with your actions. So when we told those people, no, we said to them, we do want to engage you, though. There will be reasons. And it would be hard for me to believe that anybody on this phone wouldn't like 15 free advisors to help design your culture, your experience, your tools and resources for your organization related to learning. And the tactical side, so you, you recruited your champions. Was it sort of like, hey, go do one-time 90-minute meeting and talk about our values? Or was it, hey, every month or every quarter, there's going to be a topic? Like, what did they do? Yeah. So there was also a question that said, how did you validate good standing? And that was a close collaboration with the business partners to make sure that employees were performing. We also were going through a product launch. So we had to be very clear how many people from the commercial organization we could consider because commercial is pretty aggressive. They really like stuff and they'll jump on stuff. So we had an overabundance people from the commercial organization. We had people from all levels and all functions. And we did that on purpose. We did a diversity scorecard too to make sure that we had the right mix from an inclusion standpoint. But um, Kevin, rephrase your question because I wanted to make sure I, or will you repeat your question? Because I wanted to make sure that I answered those in the chat. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that, Susan. And actually, it's a good reminder. If anyone has a question, feel free to type it in the chat or raise your digital hand and I'm going to ignore it. But Evan will see it and say, (laughs) Kevin, stop ignoring that person. And then we'll call you on to ask. So while you're thinking- I know what you asked. You asked me about the curricula. Yeah, so how how often were they doing meetings? What was that like? Yeah, so I mean, when they started, we gave them like an idea of what it would look like. And So we broke the sessions into two 90-minute sessions, and we we created a calendar so that people could sign up. We put people together that wouldn't normally be together so that they could get exposure. That was kind of the what's in it for me. And they signed up as it fit their schedule. And that wasn't that big of a deal, like four sessions across the course of a year as a facilitator. That was, you know, what, three hours total with very little prep. We supported them tremendously. Another thing that I wanted to say is there was a 
and I'm glad that I pushed on this. People said, well, they have to be charismatic and really good facilitators. Mm. And I said, no, <laughs> they don't. But they have to be as authentic because the curricula wasn't hard. It was really conversational. And we saw it. We saw authenticity win. When somebody was struggling, they could just go and read off the slide. But because they had a passion about the culture, it worked. So in these situations, really think critically about pushing back on so many, so many criteria before, you know, you even consider somebody. Yeah, authenticity wins. I love that. And Simon had a question in the chat about the champions. Like, did they represent different levels of the organization or were these like frontline folks? No, they were all across the board, all across the board. We have some people that were executive assistants all the way up to people that were vice presidents of tech ops. And they took their role seriously. I have to tell you, it was all in. It was all in how we marketed it and how we made the experience for them. It contributed to an amazing employee experience, but we had to start with them. We had to take care of our culture champions and give them a really great experience so that they could go out and they can make a difference in the culture and the experience of all of our employees. Yeah, Susan, I've just got one more. And then again, love to, to take it to Todd or any, any yeah. other questions. You said that when news of the acquisition happened, like your culture champions actually sort of became a strategic asset during the transition. Yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure many of you have gone through um, an M&A situation and Pfizer, and they're big and they were doing a lot of deals. And it was important to us that we stayed true to the culture. And so we said to them, how do we do this during a period of time where we have two very different cultures? And they said, because, you know, we were still facilitating this curricula, it hadn't run its course yet. And so they were the first people to say, I think people just want to be heard. What if we changed it and we said we used it as a way to say, you know, what do you want to stay with us as we go through this transition? What kind of, what are you curious about with Pfizer from a culture standpoint? And then let's do some brainstorming and kind of situation planning of how we can make it work then. If we have this culture, Pfizer has this culture, what is most important that we stay true to and what do we want to take on? And we call them real talk. Real talk. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Todd, you have uh, some well, relevant experience. Here. I do, Susan. So I was at Biohaven when Pfizer bought us. Yeah. Oh, hi, partner. Hi. And like you, <laughs> I am transitioning. Yeah. So very interesting. Very similar stories. I mean, you guys were a little smaller, but a great little company that had a great culture. We, we felt the same way at Biohaven. We had to do, you know, we, I felt like we were, you know, I'm talking to my sister here. I'm listening to her same story being told about Biohaven. Yeah. So, yeah. So we've got a couple of questions. Yeah. I, I, we've got one. How did you deal with toxic positivity? So I want to make sure, Simon, that I know exactly what you're talking about, because I think there's a risk of a couple of things. There's a risk of Pollyanna-ish, and then there's a risk of these are just going to be like, I'm just going to talk crap about leadership of Pfizer, for example, coming in. Like, So I want to know exactly what you mean before I answer. Yeah, I think my intention of the question is mostly for people who haven't experienced the culture that that uh, we want to push out or, you know, and so then acknowledging their experience and then like knowing that sometimes we can't, that culture change takes a long time. And so sometimes there's this this barrier and then it puts a stop. And so I just curious how you kind of navigated that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Simon. And very glad. I'm really happy to virtually meet you. Okay. So part of the curricula was we call them C1 to C2 shift. So who are we now and who do we want to be? And so for people that didn't really know the culture, we also didn't want to just be like, this is the GBT way. And that's how you have to be. These conversations were really amazing because they included things like, hey, we're new and we're feeling like, especially in the commercial organization. And I think you guys all see this for any organization that has sales as part of it is sometimes we term people legacy who have been there for a while. And It can be good, but what we found is it can kind of be toxic too, is, well, I'm not a legacy person. So one of the things actually, Simon, that we found out from that, that I think coincides with your question is, let's get rid of that term. Let's just talk about who we are as 
JBC as we grow? And what do we want to keep? And what do we want new talent to bring in? And then how do we morph that? And let's not do this five years from now. Let's do this at least every 18 months, if not two years, to keep it fresh. And to keep that one way or that this is, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid from overwhelming us. It's more of, hey, look at us. We're really adapting and evolving. Jeff Mills is in the house again. Good to see you, my friend. Yes, yes. Uh, good to see you as well, Kevin. Thank you. I was a little late getting on the call, but uh, it's been right. valuable. Oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Well, welcome back from your breakouts. Welcome back from your breakout rooms. Hopefully everyone had a chance to meet someone new or reconnect with somebody you met um, last time. Todd, we've only got a minute left. I just playing some random Mumford and Sons here to like uh, for, for our return music, um, nope. but I'll mute that. Any big takeaways or messages from the day? I think we've got a hand up. If we Do we want to take a quick hand up or no? We could try. We've got a minute left. Manavi, yes. Can I unmute yourself? Yes. Hi. Well, um, it, my question was back to Susan. Is that still a topic or are we moving on? Well, we have one minute left in the program. If you and Susan want to stay uh, for longer, we yeah. absolutely can do that. I don't know. Okay. Let's do that. Yes. Yeah, so I just want to say to everybody in the Northeast dealing with the fires, you know, hey, good luck. We're thinking about you all. The people in Canada, absolutely. You're in our thoughts and prayers. I mean, that is pretty interesting times for you up there. I was just talking to a couple of people who were on our call and our breakout and just, you know, schools are disrupted. Life is disrupted again, like we need it. But uh, hey, thoughts and prayers to those folks up in the Northeast and in Canada. Thanks, Todd. Yeah, it was uh, pretty crazy how bad it got, especially in uh, New York City. So reminder, we are going to stick around for what we just call after parties. We can talk about whatever we want. And um, so I'm hoping Susan Page can stick around for at least five more minutes for any more questions. Evan, maybe you can put the spotlight on Susan as well. But we're going to hang out just to have fun, talk about anything you want. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you for contributing to your peers. We're going to see you next month back again with another great program. And in between then, let us know how we can help. Don't forget to be active in the LinkedIn community. You can post questions and help each other there as well. And um, thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Culture Code Podcast. Are you looking to build, refine, or revamp a training program? We team up with companies like Northwestern Mutual, Cineos Health, and Duck Creek Technologies to roll out highly engaging training series for emerging leaders, new managers, women in leadership, high potential managers, sales enablement, and more. Check it out at leadx.org. What makes these series so uniquely engaging? We help you build a full system of development that leverages our cutting edge platform and world-class training. We blend together world-class cohort-based virtual training and group coaching, personalized nudges, micro-learning, and on-demand office hour style coaching. Go check it out at leadx.org. Thank you.